morning, guys. This is Doug. Welcome back to What's the Hazard. It is Friday, May 7th here in Omaha, Nebraska, and we've got a beautiful day. Sunny, cool, just the way I like it. It's uh, off to a good start. I hope you had a great week. I hope your people are safe and uh, you can go into the weekend uh, and, and relax a little bit from what I know was um, a challenging week. So hope everybody's doing well. Thanks for joining us. Um, before we get started, uh, we would not be doing this if it wasn't for our sponsors, and so I always want to make sure I thank my sponsors first and foremost. John Falowich at Falowich Construction Services, Jim Cover down at the Nebraska Department of Labor Onsite Consultation Group, and Cheyenne Wolford at CCS Group, Custom Concrete Specialists. Thank you, guys. You are true believers, and I appreciate your help, so um, much appreciated. My guest today drove in from Norfolk, and this is actually the first time we've met. Yeah. I'm sitting down with Cole Williams, who is a meat and food processing risk advisor. That's right. With uh, Insurance Associates, Inc. We're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects, meat. Uh, I am a devout carnivore. and Me too, um, Yeah, absolutely. And um, I have been, much like you, I've been working, you know, in food processing for many, many years as an OSHA person. Right. I mean, here in Nebraska, man, it's either grain or meat. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, those are our two primary exports. Right? That's it. And so we spend a lot of time in them. And um, now as a consultant, I work with a number of food processing facilities. I, I'd be, be honest with you, and you were just commenting on this. I think the perception of the industry is often um, hard, dirty. You know, yeah. So. You know, um, and, and this is kind of what we were talking about a minute ago is that it seems like, and, and this this applies really specifically to the meat industry, but I think it's true for a lot of you know a lot of um, manual labor you know uh, sort of industries is that you know there's a perception that the work is hard, um, that it's it can be dirty, it can be dangerous, and um, in, in in long hours and in tough environments, and you know one of um, one of my missions, especially as of as of late because of the growth that's happening in the meat industry, um, the number one impediment for a company to scale is their access to quality labor. Absolutely. And, um, and so, you know, I, 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 re- I got to give props to guys like you and, you know, your sponsors as well as, um, you know, folks that have taken safety as a, as a priority and, and built it in, you know, built it into their culture. I, I think that's step one, but then step two is I think a lot of times it's their best kept secret. You know, they're not they're not telling enough people about, you know, what it is that makes them unique and what it is that makes them safe. And, um, you know, these these new meat plants that are being built, um, you know, I've I've got a, quite a few meat plants in the state of Nebraska alone that are employing robotics in their mm-hmm. packaging lines. And, mm-hmm. yeah, they have their own set of challenges, but a lot of, you know, a lot of the skills, you know, required for the the modern meat facility is um, your, your technical ability there, Absolutely. there's, you know, and you, you have your big packing plants where the ability to run a knife is going to be, you know, paramount, um, and run a knife safely is going to be your most important skill. But, you know, by and large, the, 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 where the biggest need for employee employees and labor is in these medium hundred, you know, 50 employees to 250 employee plants that, the they're still oftentimes they're family owned the the folks that are running them are you know they it's still their baby they you know they've been right. doing it for 30 years or whatever and um and but they've they've managed to build these incredible facilities and much like 
you know, your sponsors that have a commitment to safety, all of the meat plants that I work with, safety is their number one priority. It just so happens to be somewhat maybe more fine-tuned to food safety. Absolutely. And, um, you know, my, my anecdotally, this is, this is true, but, um, again, going back to, you know, what my mission is, is, is to, is to make this at the forefront of their, their recruitment efforts is to say, you know, safety is number one, because if the employees aren't safe, the food's not saved, uh, the food's not safe. And then, and then highlighting all the cool stuff that they're, all, all the cool right. stuff that they're doing and the neat and innovative products that they're working on and, and, and just, and just kind of tr- try to try to help them shine a light on everything that they're doing to make sure that everybody goes home at night, everybody earns a decent wage. Um, you know, I heard uh, Followich talking about the last thing he wants to do is sit down with a family, you know, and explain, you know, they're not coming home mm-hmm. ever or for the foreseeable future because they're in the hospital. And, you know, that's that's certainly true in um, in the construction industry, but in the meat industry, yeah, there's there's a lot of grinders and blades and and those kinds of things. But they're it's it's risky, but it, it, it's not unsafe. And I and I think um, the guys that understand that because they've they've been through a bandsaw claim, mm-hmm. or you know, yeah. or um, or they've had people lose fingers and draw the ire of your you know your former yes. you know your former um, employer, um, or even just the the biggest single work comp claim that we ever had um, was a guy was taken out the trash at the end of his day and he slipped on some ice and he broke his wrist, landed like that on his wrist and just, it was, it was just, so I don't want to get, you know, I, I've, I've <laughs> kind of gotten off topic here, no, but you're good man, but that's, that's the, that's certainly the perception of the industry. And I think so too. And, and um, I, I want to hear a little bit more about you. This is the first time we've met, and I would yeah. like to hear a little bit more about your background. But you, you touched on something that I think is really important. I personally work with about a half dozen meat processing facilities here in the state of Nebraska. And, man, to a company, these people have committed themselves wholeheartedly to working safely. Mm-hmm. And if people had any appreciation for any awareness of, what has gone into keeping the doors open yeah. during the past year? Oh, yeah. The amount of money and resources that they have committed to keeping those employees safe, not only from their work environment, but from the COVID, mm-hmm. it, it, is, it is phenomenal. Yeah. And, I, and I hear them taking a bad rap on social media, what little social media I do. Right. I don't do much, but they take such a bad rap of it. Or you hear it on the news and all that, you know. The horrors of these, and and maybe those places still exist, but not the ones I see. Yeah, the ones I see, they are all in, and they have just fully committed. And it, as you said, it's a, it is an interesting environment. It's kind of this weird combination of these old techniques. You know, the knife work you described, mm-hmm. man, that is a real art to yeah, be able to. Sure. But yeah. also high technology, robotics, a lot of uh, you know, a lot of the. Um, computer-driven visuals, you know, where they're selecting, pre-selecting oh, yeah. sizes and yeah. weights. I mean, it's just phenomenal. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I've, seen, I've seen a lot of that, too. And there, there was a senator in our state that published some op-ed in, um, I think it was in the Washington Post. And it was like, so the, the title was, Meatpacking Workers Are Dying While CEOs Are Making, you know, blah, 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 whatever. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that, and, and, and the, 
and I think I think the the senator had some family that was in the industry, if I remember, because that was the context behind the article. Um, and I don't I don't want to belittle his experience with it at all. You know, I every everybody's their own you know their own person, and they all make their own choices. But one of the things that gets left out a lot of these, especially in those big plants, a lot of these guys are making thirty forty bucks an hour. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got health insurance, they've got four hundred one k benefits. They've got temporary and and uh, temporary and, or partial and long term disability. I mean, these are organizations that, um, yes, the work is hard, and yes, they're huge companies, and a lot of the money doesn't stay in our communities. But you know, there's five thousand meatpacking workers in Nebraska, mm-hmm. at least. Yeah, you know, I, and um, and they're they're doing they're doing a, a hard work, and they're. They they do their job and they go home, but it's noble work, man. It right? is. I mean, and, I, and so and so like you know when you when you see articles like that, to me it diminishes the choices of those folks that are working in those in those plants. That's a good point. More than it does to shine a light at the at the working conditions. Mm-hmm. And you know I've been at some you know some mega packing plants in the last year, and they, I mean they're state of the art, man. It's mm-hmm. it's it's no easy. It's no small financial note to make those, right. or, you know, to, to build those plants. But right. what I, what I would rather see is those, because all, of, every one of those skilled workers at uh, a Smithfield or a JBS could walk into any of the smaller plants that I work with and get a job like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a, there's a pay disparity. Mm-hmm. And so really to me, again, <laughs> off topic here, but really to me, the, the best way for, for those, for, um, for political institutions to protect those workers is to provide resources to these smaller plants so that people don't have to work shoulder to shoulder in, um, in those, in, in those hard conditions. Cause again, they're getting, they're getting paid fairly for their work. In my opinion, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. they have all the benefits and stuff, but you know, wouldn't we all rather work for a mom and pop where, you know, the owners and, and you can, and if you have a problem with somebody, you can talk to them after work. You don't get that stuff, and so where where they're lacking, and and the you know the the meat lobby has made sure of this that it that it pans out this way, is that if there was a fraction of the federal subsidy that went to the meat process, the 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 big the big packers went down to these smaller facilities, um, that wasn't some bureaucratic nightmare. Um, these facilities would actually have the funds to to upgrade their facilities and, um, and pay these guys the wages that they, that they deserve. Cause every, every employee, every employer that I, that I work with wants to pay their people more. And it's, it's a low margin business. The money's just a lot of times just isn't there. Um, and a lot, especially the small, you know, mom and pop shops. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're making the same money that the employees are making. Yeah. And, and so everybody wants to pay their workers more because, I I have yet to find an employer that hates all their employees. Yeah, that I I don't see that anymore either. Man. Yeah, I mean people still, you know, they're still referring back to 100 years ago when mm. you know there were you know they were really horrible conditions. Right. But I, I don't see that either. No. Well, man, um, let's get back to you. How, yeah. how did you? You're from Norfolk. Yeah. Are yep. you originally from Norfolk? Yep. I'm I'm from Norfolk. Um, I've worked in the agency that I'm with for. I think it's 12 years now. Wow. I, 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 I kind of lose track of time. 
Um, it gets worse. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I kind of track it to, um, I've been married for 11 years and, um, she insisted you have a job first. Well, so. <laughs> well I was, wor- I was working in the agency before we get married, okay. before we got married. So I know it's at least 12 years, Very the good. start and end date, you know, the start date's kind of, kind of fuzzy to me, but, um, and then yeah. how did you find yourself specializing in this? Yeah. This so, world? um, the, the agency that I work with is owned uh, by my parents, Scott and Lori Williams. Mm-hmm. And um, they're my, my mother, my mom's uh, father, Jim Nelson, started the agency way back in the late 60s. Gotcha. And somewhere along the line, I want to say it was in the early 80s, somewhere around there, he bought a small agency in, of all places, I think, Pender. Um, yeah. And at the time, it just happened to have 15 or 20 little butcher shops around the area mm-hmm. and uh kind of a light bulb went off because the the coverage was the coverage was terrible didn't address any of their needs the premium was high and the access to markets was severely limited and so when you're looking at in the insurance world when you're looking at building a niche i mean those are the three things that you kind of look at okay access to market limited coverage high premiums because if you can solve any one of those three or, or all three of them, then you've got a really good recipe to build to build, Absolutely. build a good book. Build a good book. So fast forward, um, I went to school and I studied English writing and literature. I didn't know what I was going to do with that. I was working at the Great Dane plant up in Wayne, which I'm yeah, which I'm sure you which I've been there many times, which I'm sure you've been. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I didn't really know what I was going to do with my life. I I liked the work, but it wasn't you know the I, I could I couldn't see myself working there for forever. So I was actually on the on the path to getting enlisted in the Navy. Um, I was like, well, you know, I can travel the world. And my ultimate goal at the time was to continue that hand work, you know, working with my hands, do some time in the Navy, um, and then get out and go work on a um, uh, alternative energy, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, yeah. contracting company. Yep. Um, so while I was doing that, um, the agencies always, you know, since the early eighties, they've had this book of meat processors, um, and they, they had an opportunity to partner with the company, uh, which I'm wearing mm-hmm. this is their logo, Midwest family mutual okay. yeah. based out of, uh, Minneapolis and, um, well, actually I think they're actually based out of Iowa, but their headquarters is in Minneapolis. Okay. And they came to us with a program idea to reinvigorate that that program nice um the it's a small company the ceo at the time which now the ceo is his son avid hunters you know grew up in in rural iowa knew what butcher shops were like and so that's just kind of how you know kind of how that whole thing started just evolved into yeah you, you must work with quite a few of them yeah and so when i when i first started um 12 years and and so getting back to that then um it was, you know, the the question was go to the Navy or take an – because I was like, I can still go to the Navy if I don't like this because I'll be honest, the idea of just, you know, there's a lot of insurance offices in this park, and I kind of drove by all of them. And I was like, <laughs> right. oh, God, thank God I'm not one of those guys, right? Um, uh, they serve their place, and, and they all work hard, and they, they earn a good living. But um, – the idea of just being like a home and auto and local business agent just wasn't really all that interesting to me. Yeah. So I thought this was a unique opportunity to, to see um, a different side of kind of how the world works. And 
Um, you know what I tell people is once you've seen the sausage made, you just want to eat sausage, right? <laughs> um, and, and I get to travel all over the country and sample some, you know, the regional delicacies, beef jerky in, um, in Southern Nebraska tastes different than beef jerky in Northern Nebraska. Absolutely. And, you know, and so all the, you know, and so that's kind of where it started. And, um, along the way, you know, my wife and I, we, we ended up getting married and we have three kids. Uh, my wife is Michaela. She works at Northeast Community College. Oh yeah, and um, in the early college program, which is uh, it, which is a great program. And then I have uh, three kids. I have Max, uh, Claire, and Charlotte. Oh, very good. Yeah, man. they're ten, almost eight, and six. Very good. That's so, awesome. Yeah. So that's that's awesome. I I I have a fondness for the industry. Interestingly, when I when I left OSHA. And, and the meatpacking industry, that was kind of the um, initiation. When we would hire new sure. compliance officers at OSHA, <laughs> we would take them out to a packing house, typically Monford out in Grand mm-hmm. Island, which I think is JBS now yeah. or something. Yeah, you go tell them to, to look in the OFAL room and oh, make yeah, sure man. everything's safe in there? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we would bring them through there, and they would either cry, vomit, or some combination of all body <laughs> excrementation, right. if yeah, that's yeah. even a word, you know? And um, that was really the initiation. Then we would go out to dinner, a steak dinner, at the Texas T-Bone. Yeah, in GI. Yep. In GI. That would be the, the process. And we would sit there and saw through some raw big steak, and they would eat salad typically or something, you know. Oh, gosh. Maybe chicken fingers right, or something. Yeah. Or if they got a big raw steak, we knew they were, they were going to make it. Right. But many... We converted many to uh, some type of vegetarian lifestyle. Oh, my. Poor, it was interesting. For them. For them, yeah, exactly. But I out. do... You know, when I left OSHA and started consulting, I said, no more packing houses, man. I'm done with that. And I also said, no more khakis. I'm not wearing khakis again. (laughs) And I had a few other promises I made to myself that I didn't keep, of course, because some of my best clients are, you know, the meat processors, the packing houses. And and I enjoy working with them. Yeah. You know, it's righteous work, man. Yeah, man. You're you're 100%. And I've... um you know, I've I've taken um, the opportunity to go, you know, work with a handful of my customers just so I understand the uh, been on the line. You mean actually? Yeah, work? Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, in, in the small butcher shops, I've helped. You know, yeah. I've just been like, especially real early on, I was like, Tell, walk me through this. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember when I was, oh, I was green, and I was up at a small butcher shop in South Dakota, and there's a giant. Hereford bull in the pen. I was standing there and the owner's talking to me and I saw this, you know, one of his employees walking around in the back and, uh, cause I was the, I was facing away from the bull and the owner was looking right at me and I saw him look over at the corner of his eye. And I was like, what's going on here? And then bang, just, <laughs> just scared the crap out of me. I was like, holy shit, you guys use <laughs> actual 30, 30, you know, I think it was a 22 mm-hmm. as, for, uh, for cattle. And he's like, yep, every day. And that, He's like, that rifle's been in this shop since 1908 or something like that. Yeah. And it's like, it works all the same. That was the knocker back yeah. then or whatever. Sad story. Uh, that same plant got broken into, and uh, the only thing that they took was that rifle. Oh, that is a sad, sad story, It was man. a sad, it was, I, I felt felt terrible for him. But, that is too bad. Um, but yeah, it's. Well, they typically uh, don't use the uh, they, they, 22s any longer, not. Not no, it's not. It's not. It doesn't happen. It's not, it's not as commonplace um, anymore. But you still find them a lot in the small mm-hmm. plants. And you walk in there and you look at the pens. And there's little, you know, little oblong shaped, you mm-hmm. know, holes in the wall. And mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, because and now know, we don't 
we call it harvesting now. Yes, yeah. We don't really call it kill or slaughter or whatever we used to call it. We've kind of softened yeah. that a little bit. For well, and I think I think a lot of that a lot of that terminology has changed because you know UNL has a fabulous uh, meat science program, and now granted they turn out a lot of kids that end up getting employed by the big you know the big companies, but a lot of them end up going and open up businesses. I have seven or eight of my customers that have masters in meat science and they're the ones that I love buying meat from. Um, one of, one of them is, um, is uh Faltine's meat market in Howells. So shout out to Ryan Bomber. Okay. Um, you might have to hook me up with one yeah, of these. Well, I have two college age sons coming home here in about a week, man. <laughs> I could use a discount. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really nice knowing guys like that because you know that they know the technical side. And if you, um, if you want to be picky and specific, you know, those guys will know how to cut a tri-tip mm-hmm. or, you know, will know how to cut a flat iron out of the sirloin mm-hmm. cap and get it right without having that piece of gristle, you know, that runs mm-hmm. through the end of it. But, um, so yeah, I think a lot of that terminology and just updating the the standards and practices has come a lot of it from the, you know, the food safety, Fantastic. Iowa state has a really good yes. one. Um, you know, uh, K state, also has a really good one. University of Missouri does, um, and as much as I despise a few of those schools uh, for <laughs> for the for the football implications for obvious reasons, um, absolutely, they're really doing good work in the industry. Um, That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I, I would like to. One of the things that we talk about regularly on this podcast is safety culture. Sure. And you know, we had mentioned that just in some correspondence mm-hmm. before you came down about cultural aspects of working safely in a packing house or something like that. Talk about that a little bit. Well, um, so to start, I got to, like I said, I got to give, you know, guys like you props for working with these plants to provide the resources to make, to, to, to make the job safe. Number one, um, my, my focus is, is what happens after. You know what happens after, mm-hmm. and, and and that's as much a part of the culture as as anything else. And um, you know, I wrote a blog pro, blog post recently about, um, you know, the the term culture gets thrown around loosely a lot. It does, but I think one of the downsides of it is that it also gets siloed into employee safety culture or food safety culture or, um you know, corporate management culture. I mean, all those kinds of things. And I think, I think it does people a disservice to, to, to split those individually up because it's just, it's just one blanket, you know, one blanket approach, especially as it relates to, um, to the food industry. And, well, and, and, you know, even the construction industry, some of those other ones is, Absolutely. is safety is a, is a, is a mindset that, um, starts from the top down and, um, you know, the, the, the unique thing about, um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that food safety and employee safety are one and the same. And, um, you know, just, just using the, the, the example of a, of an amputation, that finger is going to go into a tub of meat. Um, that tub of meat has to be addressed and, and just discarded. You, you can't even sell it for, uh, for, for cooked product or whatever. But, um, so there's all the, there's all these interlapping, you know, food safety methodologies, bloodborne bloodborne pathogens, the HACCP programs, the mm-hmm. the sta- the standard sanitary operating procedures, all those things, and there's all these all these um, other you know for the for the worker safety side that are running, 
you know, they're, it's kind of like running down a train track that they'll never, that they'll never cross. And, and the, the, the companies that I've seen really take their food safety to the next level, um, is by incorporating one and the same. And, you know, the, you know, I, I hear a lot of guys where they're like, well, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're a small business still. And, you know, they've got 250 employees and you're like, okay, whatever. Um, we just don't have the time to, to implement this stuff. And it's like, well, you guys are already risk managing everything mm-hmm. that you do. Just use those blueprints and I'll give you the resources that you need or hook you up with Doug or, or some of the other folks that I know and just say, these are the areas. This is the harvest procedure. These are the safety methods that go in the harvest procedure. This is the, the ready to eat pros, uh, ready to eat um, workflow diagram, all those things. And so as soon as, as soon, and you can kind of see the light bulb start to click. And it, and it really clicks when I show them the uh, – so every recall that gets instituted in the United States is is public information. So you can go back and look up the experience mods of all those different companies, and more often than not, it's about 51% of the time, those companies also have elevated experience mods. Interesting. Which means that they've either had one huge claim or a bunch of small claims or, or a combination of the both, but – um, I guess my, my perspective is it's not anytime I see a business with a good experience mod, that's the one that I want to go find because I know they're doing something right. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I'm, I'm kind of sorely disappointed. It's all accidental. And you ask them, what's their safety manual? We don't have one. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, how's everybody safe? And it's like, I don't know. These guys have all worked here for 30 years. Mm-hmm. They just know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So, so they've just adapted to the hazards. Right. They haven't really addressed them any. Right. In any formal, they, they yeah. know they know they're there. They it's kind of like if it looks and acts like a duck, it's a duck. You know, I mean, you can see those those processes, but you know, kind of coming back to what we were talking about earlier with access to labor, um, it's it's that kind of stuff. The 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 in house apprenticeship that you're going to get by working with a guy that's worked there for for ten years that that's where you're going to learn the ropes. And kind of like what Followich was saying is, you know, he's got you know, he, he pairs their new employees up with people that have been there for a while and they do 30, 60, 90, 120 day look backs on, on everything that's going on. And most workers that are going to be injured are going to be injured within a month of the job. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's, how do you, it's, how do you take your culture that is as food safety and then, and that, that existing safe culture, that's kind of, unwritten and marry those two together. And that's where we've seen the the best way to do that is to start by looking at your HACCP program, which is the, the it's called hazard analysis, critical control points. It's the, it's your, it's the basis of your food safety program that you have to have. Um, everybody has to have, has to have it. Um, I think there are some smaller ones that don't, but I can't, I don't, I don't work with any that don't mm-hmm. have HACCP plans. Okay. So describe that in a little bit more detail. So, that that program, that plan from a food safety perspective can be used as your template for incorporating working safety yeah. from a mm-hmm. personnel standpoint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it addresses, you know, in, in a there's a, it's it's just like a like an organizational chart. You mm-hmm. know, it starts at the top and it branches off from there. Okay. Every process that they do has its own HACCP plan. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're a beef jerky plant, you're gonna have Jack Links or somebody. Yeah, you're you're gonna have your um your your HACCP plan for snack sticks or beef jerky and your and, and but but both of those have similar, you know, basis points of 
this happens, then this happens, and here's the interventions, and here's the critical control points. And so I'm just like, you guys are already doing this. Mm-hmm. Just put some employee safety stuff in there too. Yeah, exactly. And um, and it, I've I've found that it 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 decreases the um the the barrier. It takes yeah. it takes some of those barriers away. That feeling of being overwhelmed. Where do right. I start? If they can mimic basically or just incorporate it into that right. house. Right. You know, that's uh, you, you've said a lot of really interesting things in just this last short segment, but. I agree with that. I think traditionally we have viewed safety as something we add on to our production. Sure. We have production. We, mm-hmm. we produce a product or we, have a, we, uh, we provide a service, whatever it is we do. And then on Fridays we talk about safety. Right. Rather than what you've described, marrying those together. They are, they are inseparable and intertwined and we shouldn't treat them as individual components. I right. mean, when you teach someone how to operate a machine, you teach them how to operate the machine safely. Right. You don't take them in on Friday and talk about lockout, tagout as if it's something that you just do right. in addition. Right. And I think we have treated it that way. And I, I, to some degree, I blame my OSHA brothers because OSHA was so compliance fixated. And, you know, mm-hmm. you must do this training annually. You must do this annually. This must be done every three years. Man, just incorporate it into those existing procedures. If it was right. part of your SOP or your HACCP, mm-hmm. as you've just described, you know, it, it, it just flows so much more naturally. Right. I, and what and, and, and not to not to kick OSHA while they're down because no, they, no, no. they deserve they, it on occasion. Well, but it, it's just it's just like what a what a wasted opportunity to be a resource driven organization. I mean, they, they could have been that way all along. I mean, OSHA started with the meatpacking industry in the nineteen hundreds, you know, the jungle, uh, mm-hmm. Upton Sinclair's book about yeah. The, the terrifying conditions right. of, um, you know, of the of the meat industry in the was it in Kansas City or I think it was Chicago. It's probably yeah, Chicago. It was, yeah. Um, but you know, it's it's hard it's hard to fault a government entity that's been around for over a hundred years for being stuck in their ways. Um, but I, again, it's just it's just one of those wasted opportunities that that they could have been a resource. Um, yeah. and, and, and in a way to help. And it's like with that VPP program that we were talking about, those, those are odd, those are voluntary, mm-hmm. you know? And it, that was like, why aren't more people taking advantage of that? Because you're asking them to come out and yes, it's stringent to get in there, but even if you don't, you're going to have, <laughs> they're, they're going to give you the, the, the skill sets that you need. Absolutely. That, that you're exactly right. And when I, I spent almost 20 years with OSHA here in Nebraska and, um, I spent 10 of those 20 years as the compliance assistance person, the sure. outreach person. Right. And I went into the boss one day and I told him, look, we've got 10 compliance officers that are out there making inspections. And we've got one outreach person right. who's out there interacting with the community, doing right. training. I said, give me half the compliance officers. Mm-hmm. And I think we can turn this thing around. Did he? You know, absolutely not. Oh. <laughs> no, and, and, it, and it wasn't within his power to do right, that yeah, either. No, you know, in the government, they said, you have 10 compliance officers. Right. You have one outreach guy. I mean, that right. was just mandated to him. I don't think he believed me anyway, but I was always an advocate for doing that, training, interacting, you know, cooperatives, you know, working together in partnerships like the VPP, mm-hmm. those types of things. And maybe it's naive to think that, in the absence of enforcement, people will follow rules. That that may be a little bit naive to some degree, but I was always a proponent of doing right. more of that. So well, and I don't, I don't, I, I guess I wouldn't necessarily call it naive because I think 
I think one of the one of the challenges that I've seen, and this this goes back. This isn't just OSHA. This is the the USDA and the Food Safety Inspection Service and and all their rules and regs and all that kind of stuff is. I, I just don't think those governmental entities give people enough credit for that. Everybody, if you own a business, your goal is to be profitable so that you can provide livelihood, whether it's to you, to your employees, to your community. And so I have yet to meet a business owner that if you give them a set of a, a set of practical improvements that they can make, that A, they're at least not appreciative. They might not get to it right away. But they're appreciative that you're that you're there to provide support and resources. Um, but then B, I just don't think the government uh, in both of those agencies gives enough people credit for the idea that most people want to get better. Mm-hmm. You know, I would agree, and and, and I completely uh, agree. It's, yeah, it's so you know, interesting. Uh, it, it's a it's it's a weird deal. But yeah, the 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 culture thing is you know it's it's everything, and um, the ones that I think. Um, there's been a lot of new plants come into the industry, especially during the rise of COVID. And we're already starting to see some of them crap out. Um, and, um, but it's the ones that have been around the longest that have some kind of secret sauce. You know, I, there was, they're, they're not a customer of mine anymore, but they were, um, I, I worked with them for a long years and they, they sold, um, control to a private equity company and, it had just gotten too big for him to sell it <laughs> to really anybody else. But, um, you know, I asked them, I was like, what, what was your tipping point? Um, there's that, you know, that Malcolm Gladwell book, it's literally called tipping point. Um, and they said, well, I asked them, what was it? And, and it was, they said that they, that they took a risk and invested in a really expensive, you know, hundred thousand dollar packaging machine, uh, 15 years ago. And he said that allowed us to, package things quicker that cut down on our bottlenecks that we were able to use. We could add, we could supplement the smokers that we were using because that now they're the largest private label snacks that company in the, in, mm-hmm. in the country. Um, so everybody has their own little secret sauce, but mm-hmm. you know, when you're competing in the meat industry, it's all protein. I mean, mm-hmm. that's all it is. Mm-hmm. It's just something unique about it. It's yeah. the people that, you know, Farmers, you know, it's the it's the networking that you've done. And what 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 are companies that that yeah, you work with? And again, culture is something I think, as you said, I think that term is overused or misused. Oftentimes, right. we're really just talking about a mindset or mm-hmm. an attitude, typically that that typically um, flows from the top down. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really doesn't work if it's not supported necessarily by top management or right. owners or whomever. Sure, yeah. What what do you what do you see? What are they doing? Is it just the example that is being set, or the expectations being set by that top management, or how does culture work in a in a meat environment? Boy, that's that's a great question. Um, and I and I I hate to be the guy that just says it depends. Mm-hmm. Um, but everyone does. <laughs> well, right, but um, but a lot of you know the the elements that I've seen that have been that have been successful have been companies that are intentional with and again that's another word that gets thrown around a lot that you know we're going to be an intentional organization well what the hell does that mean um i see people that are doing it that way without ever having it set out to be a part of their mission you know it's just we're going to be specific we have x number of pounds to get done how are we going to do it the fastest way we can while also being safe and a lot of times what i've seen is that the the those two speed and safety 
there's a there's a, a marrying of investments in technology and slowing down. You know, um, how many times have you been on a job site where you see somebody just rushing to get something done, and they um, they want to get up on a lift real quick and just pull something down that they don't clip in, they're reaching, they fall over it, you know? Uh, that was the last fatality I investigated right. with OSHA was a guy did the same thing. Yeah. Um, and so it, it, and, and it, so to me, the, the, the answer to the question is those, those two things seem to be the biggest, you know, um, uh, the, the two biggest variables on uh, how safe an organization is. Because every, every new piece of equipment that you're going to buy comes with, regulated safety standards. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then you, so, okay. So you say you get this bright, shiny new object and you're just like, we're going to cram so much shit through this thing. It's going to be amazing. Um, but then all of a sudden you, you, you're starting to see people bottlenecking and you've got, you know, 30 of your hundred employees sitting in the packaging line. Then, then they're, they're working too fast and then they're running to go get another pallet. And so it's it's those two things. It's mm-hmm. the it's the capacity to go fast, but also the restraint to keep it slow, mm-hmm. uh, or you know to keep it at its you know below below its maximum limit. Yeah, and and maintain an acceptable level of right safety slash risk, however you view right. that. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I I don't I guess I don't know if that really answers. No, your that, question. that's interesting. Though. I guess nobody's ever really asked me that before. So, but gotta, I, I think the even the term intentional, I, I think there is something to that. I do think that, you know, I, I go into places where they do things that they believe are making the work more safe mm-hmm. uh, without really giving it a lot of thought. Right. I mean, we're supposed to do this, we're supposed to do that, put that there, do this, and they don't really understand why necessarily. It's, I'm not sure it's intentional or it's even well considered. Well, I'll, I'll give you an example of that. The, the biggest one that I see is stainless steel mesh gloves. Um, there's... You know, if you have, so every, if you go into a meat plant, every worker that you're going to see with a knife is going to have gloves on. Most of those gloves are going to be, they're going to have lines of Kevlar that reach through the glove that if you run a knife across it, it's just going to bounce off mm-hmm. of it. Um, but you can still poke in between it and get yourself in the thumb and the finger, you know, all those kinds of things. So there's a lot of guys that are like, oh, gosh, we, you know, somebody cut their finger. We got to put them on, we got to put mesh gloves on them. Well, those things weigh about a pound and a half a piece. Right. So now you've got, and they're hard to grip with. And you also have to wear that glove over top of it to keep it from getting caught and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so like it, it's, it's that kind of knee jerk reaction to, um, to a claim like that or a situation like that, that really prompts more analysis and the companies that, that are thinking about it intentionally will say, you know, they'll, they'll use that as an opportunity to say, okay, could that accident have been prevented? Yes. Um, is the solution that the industry standard provides, is that the right answer? Oftentimes not. Mm-hmm. So what's, what's a, you know, what's a better, you know, a, a finger, a thumb, you know, those, yeah, they can be, they can be expensive claims, but you know, what's, uh, I had one of my customers was so I'm using my hands here, but you, you have a car, you have a carcass hanging. I know up. exactly yeah. what you mean. man. You have a carcass hanging up and you're working the knife with the blade, you know, like you're like in a stabbing motion yep. and you're pulling yep. down and he, he pulled too hard the owner of the company and, and got himself in the femoral artery. Mm-hmm. And now luckily the guy happens to be an EMT 
and he got it low enough that he could get, and he had the right kind of tourniquet. There's a there's a there's a tourniquet that EMTs use. Mm-hmm. Um, if if you don't have one, you can use a belt. But really, the best thing if you don't have one is to get a piece of string tied in a knot and then use like a wrench or something to to twist it. Right. To so he had some that. Torque. Yeah, he had that. Um, and it's you know it saved his life. Um, so that that situation is like okay, how are we going to prevent this? Let's put plastic aprons on. That that one makes sense because. You know, in in your, what you know, when you're thinking of what's the hazard in mm-hmm. my in my world, in the insurance world, we're also thinking about what's the frequency and severity. Mm-hmm. Of course, and um, and yeah, and severity of puncturing a femoral artery is a lot higher than poking yourself in the finger, and so then so that's a practical step that, and you can wear chainmail under your, or you can they now they have um. They're almost just like plexiglass that mm-hmm. they're just a vest, you know, that you hang down. It's a lot lighter than stainless steel, right. a little more flexible, um, and it doesn't grind on your neck as much. Mm-hmm. But um, but that, that that's a very interesting comment, man. Thank you for saying that. I think safety is oftentimes, you know, overreactive. Sure. You know, we've we've had an incident, you know, maybe one incident in the past five years, but that incident um, – initiates this reaction where all of a sudden we're throwing stuff at it without a really serious analysis. Right. And it doesn't always, you know, OSHA has a, one of the affirmative defenses from an OSHA citation is something that we refer to as greater hazard. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if I can comply with that OSHA requirement, but by doing so, I've actually created a greater hazard and then may not be the best approach to mitigating this issue. Mm-hmm. And so we, we do that a lot. We throw stuff at a problem that we believe uh, in, in a good faith attempt to address it, right. but we've created perhaps a greater hazard, even just the stress that goes into wearing PPE all day. Yeah, the um, Cover was saying that, uh, I listened to this one yesterday, he said PPE is a, is a Band-Aid, and a lot of times it gets in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, in a, in a meat plant when, when there's moving machinery, you can't have anything that's hanging loose. Like um, uh, we've had a couple death claims, but the most gruesome one was from um, a, a packing house. And um, <laughs> you were probably involved when this happened. You might know what I'm talking about, but a guy was in the hide room and, you know, it's a, co- it's a cold room, but there's a conveyor belt. And mm-hmm. because it's cold, he was wearing a scarf. Mm-hmm. Um, it this was out in Hastings. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, it was gruesome. He was hanging there for a half hour before, because all of a sudden the hide stopped coming out. Mm-hmm. Somebody went in to check on him. There's this guy hanging up at the top of this, this top of this chute. Um, died two weeks later, and mm-hmm. um, and they got a pretty severe. Now I that company's that. been rung up a few other times. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to mention their name. Yeah, they they had some issues. I don't yeah. want to draw their ire, but um, I we, don't mind. <laughs> well, we we worked with them at the time, and it was just like they didn't. I heard about it from one of my other customers who their daughter had worked there, and she's like, "Do you hear about that death claim that happened wherever?" Mm-hmm. I was like, "What the hell are you talking about?" So I I was like, "I gotta go. I gotta call and see what's going on." Mm-hmm. So I called him, and oh yeah, the guy died. They hadn't even made notification. Mm-mm. Three weeks later, he just wow. passed away. Yeah, man, I remember Mike Canet uh, investigated that. Mm-hmm. If you worked with Mike at all on uh, that, the, I, 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 but I do no, remember I that one specifically because, you know, one of the things that I um, 
have have done in my own personal life is remove all the strings out of every hoodie in my house. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So 100%. my boys and I, we all have hoodies. Of course, it's mm-hmm. what guys do that don't like to wear actual, you know, right. nice clothes. Right. And so um, I was at a grain elevator one time watching a young kid, a maintenance guy, working on uh, around a belt and pulley, mm-hmm. and his hoodie strings were there dangling. You're like, oh right God. on that, and I'm just like, bro, uh, dude, you, we we can't do this, and so. Uh, we take them out of all of our... Now, my boys don't like that necessarily. Right. But I, I pull them all out the minute they walk in the house. You know? Well, if it's cold, wear a goddamn stocking cap like a normal yeah, person, right? No doubt. <laughs> I know. But, yes, those are those are things that uh, don't always register. Right. And so, you know, going back to the, you know, the, the idea of intent is, um, you know, the... And, and I forget what the term you use, but the, the solution can never be worse than the problem. Mm-hmm, right. And, you know, uh, so, like, wearing wearing chainmail gloves, um, people are going to, I don't know if somebody's going to come give me shit about this, but I don't think that they should be used in, in meat plants because there's too many other pieces of moving parts. And you know what, just because you have a chainmail glove on, you're not going to poke it with this hand. You still could be doing this. Mm-hmm. And if you can't grip that beef better, right. And it's more slippery. It's like, put the aprons on and wear the, wear the forearm guards. Mm-hmm. You know, those are, mm-hmm. those are, those are practical pieces of PPE that mm-hmm. I can get behind. And it's interesting because, you know, OSHA's expectation is that the employer do that assessment. Mm-hmm. The employers will ask me, what, P- P- what PPE do we need here? I'm like, well, <laughs> let's, on, act, let's do an assessment, okay? Right. I mean, you don't just assign stuff because somebody else said you had to. Right. You know, the guy that you bumped into at the mm-hmm. 7-Eleven said, you guys are, I mean, do an assessment, you know, do a reasonable assessment, evaluate it, and consider what the risks are. The hard that, hats are another one that in the meat world, I'm just like, why do you guys have hard hats on? Well, you know, because those guys head. were all walking under <laughs> conveyors and bumping their heads. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe, you know, so they're walk. Yeah. So yeah. they were, they started wearing bump caps and stuff. Mm-hmm. The alternative would have been just either, you know, install a walkover or raise the conveyor so I can get under it without mm-hmm. bumping my head or something. You shouldn't be walking under a conveyor anyways. Yeah. If I you're mean, under it, you're, you know, yeah, you're, you're still moving it. on the other side. So <laughs> yeah, the whole, it's again, rather than addressing the issue, like Cover said, you just put the bandaid on it, right. you know, uh, let's, let's fix the issue. Right. Why are we crawling under conveyors in the first place? In right. that, and and that, that process, I mean, that, um, I mean, we've already talked about how I think, you know, that that food processors have so much more control and more resources than than they are than they're giving themselves credit for. Um, but then, you know, like like I said at the beginning is again, again, I got to give you you guys props um, for trying to to identify the hazards and to mitigate them with, you know, with reasonable steps. But then it's like what what happens when you're done with that? You know, what happens if it doesn't work? And, um, or what happens if it works and an accident still happens, mm-hmm. that's where, and that's where the insurance world gets really funky and, and intricated or in, in intricate because, you know, you might have, um, a slip, trip and fall, which try as you might, it's going to be really hard mm-hmm. to, to mitigate that yeah, as best tough. you can. Even, even the, the non-slip floors, it's all bullshit. That's just somebody selling you. And a lot of times the FDA or the USDA doesn't like that stuff because oh, that yeah, particulate, they, yeah, man, you particulate clean that comes stuff. off. Yeah. Right. Um, and after you wash it with enough times with, you know, whatever, um, you know, whatever combination of chemicals you're using to clean it, um, 
then it wears off and you're going to have, uh, but anyways, I don't want to get, I don't want to go on a tangent on that, but, um, so slip, trip and fall. Somebody has a claim, they slip and fall, they break, sprain their wrist. Okay. That claim, let's just, and let's just say for the, the lack of the conversation or for the point of the conversation that they, that they do break their wrist and it's their right wrist and they're right-handed and that claim's going to cost you the, the, the work comp carrier is going to pay yeah, 15, 20 grand. So I think where a, another piece of disconnect that I see a lot, and, and this is where we really try to get heavily involved is those, those additional costs that come after that. I mean, everybody knows what their experience mod is, or they should. If they don't, it's a, it's a calculation of either uh, one is baseline average, one anything above one is a is a debit premium. Anything below one is a is a credit premium, uh, based off of your based off of your loss history. The big the the thing that I don't think uh, anybody and I, I nobody teaches anybody how to buy insurance. Right? There's no mm-hmm. class about how to buy insurance. It's just well, we've always done it the way and mm-hmm. blah blah blah. Jim Bob from down the street knew my grandpa. Yada yada yada. Usually, even with some gigantic companies, I'm just it just blows me away that there's a guy that writes one meat plan. Um, but anyways, the 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 most so so you've got your twenty thousand dollar claim. Um, the Bureau of Labor and Statistics estimates that best in class scenario is going to be you're going to pay at least two percent or two times that claim in indirect costs. Um, Best case scenario. Best case scenario. The the range is two to twenty, mm-hmm. um, and so what what's indirect cost? That's that experience mod that I mentioned. Um, there's going to be since it's that person's right hand, they're not going to be doing their job for six to eight weeks, and then maybe longer if they have physical therapy after that. Um, so somebody else is going to have to work extra time, or you're going to be slower. So it uh, you know indirect costs are. Insurance premiums, consulting fees, um, uh, overtime labor, lack of oper- you know, uh, rehiring, miss- retraining, rehiring, retraining. Because maybe, maybe that risk break is bad enough. Like that guy that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. that he didn't speak any English and he can't. He'll never work with that hand again. So we had to, we we didn't have to. It was, it was what was right. Is we ro- enrolled him in 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 a uh, English, uh, in an English program, taught him English. Mm-hmm. And then helped him get a job in a different industry because he's never going to work in the meat all industry again. Um, but all those things really start to add mm-hmm. up. And so the 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 real quick and easy way around this, um, the step one to minim, to minimize those indirect claims or indirect um, indirect costs is to, if they're injured, don't let your workers' comp carrier pay their lost wages. Just don't do it. If it's if it's a cut finger, um, a you know uh, a broken bone, you know something that you can see that there is going to be a huge you know um, any sort of um, long term indemnity payment where they're going to have some loss of use in their hand or whatever. Just keep paying their wages. They're they're going to make more because the workers' comp carrier is only going to pay them two thirds of their wage. Now there's no taxes on that, so that's why they take the two thirds out. But then you can keep them engaged. You can keep them in your plant. And then the biggest factor is that with their experience, so you put them on some kind of light duty or yeah, some type light of return duty. to work of some sort. Yep, return to work. Well, and so so you you try to prevent your injuries is your mm-hmm. safety manual, mm-hmm. um, 
and your pre-hire drug screening. That those are the two, the two elements that really make a difference there. The the two elements after that are your post-accident drug screening and your return to work program. And we are are we call them our core four. Those those four manuals, in in our estimation, count or make up a pretty robust you know pretty robust safety mm-hmm. safety program. Um, but so interesting. So you you pay the wages and keep them in the plant. Mm-hmm. That's your recommendation. That's like my that. recommendation. Hundred yeah. percent. Okay. Because they're they're going to, um, they're going to stay engaged with their with their peer group. Um, and then the, this, this sounds like just a jaded insurance agent, but it's, it's reality. There's a reason why attorneys ads run at 10 o'clock in the morning on, on, you know, public, you know, local TV. It's because that's when people are home watching TV when they're usually out working. Um, and, and it just, and so that when they're in your plant, they're not, they don't feel isolated mm-hmm. and then they're not watching those because all those ads are like, have you been, you know, have you been, you turn in a work comp claim and the carrier's only looking out for themselves and your employer and they're, they're driving a wedge and it's like, they're good at it. You know what they're doing. Oh yeah. Um, and so you, you keep them from being isolated. You keep them in your peer group. You keep them working. There's a huge value in work. That's mm-hmm. another thing I think our culture has backwards is this idea that people don't want to work. Um, I think people when given the opportunity to do good work for decent wages, they'll, they would prefer that than over government handouts any day. Um, so if you, if you have all those things going on, then the natural recourse is just to say, take your days off. You're not going to lose any money. Cause that's the other thing that they're afraid of is if I don't, if I can't work, I'm not going to get paid. Just keep paying them. Mm-hmm. It's the same difference. Yeah. It might, it might, um, you might, they might not be doing what they were supposed to be doing, but, if your experience mod, uh, or if your if that claim shows up on your experience mod is anything other than injury code six, which is medical only, you're going to pay more in experience mod premium over the three year period than you would pay in this guy's wages for six weeks. Okay, interesting. A hundred percent of the time. Interesting. I mean, it's just that's and that that's not something that many people know about. Um, there's some good agents that I know that talk a lot about that and. Um, there's, but there's just not enough. So I, I don't, if there's insurance agents listening to this, I don't feel like I'm in competition with anybody because there's just flat out, not enough talking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, now if there's, if there's going to be a back injury or a shoulder injury or, you know, something like that, you should still keep paying them their wages, work around their work restrictions. You know, the, the, and, and so that's the other part of a return to work program is, is in Nebraska, we're, uh, I think the term is managed care. So we can, in Nebraska, you can tell the, the, you can establish a relationship with a clinic. And, you know, some people like the, the labor advocates will say, well, that's just because you have a sidetrack deal with the clinic. And the reason is to simplify the paperwork, just to know that you have approval to send release orders directly to us. So we know what they're doing and what they can and can't do. Um, as soon as possible. And, um, and, and so the, those, those, those kind of elements all spun together are going to be, you know, one simple way that every employer in the country can, uh, can minimize one of the indirect costs of, of claims, which is the premium component as a result of the, the claim hitting their experience. Interesting. Okay, yeah. man. I do agree with you on that. 
you know, establishing a relationship with a local occupational health clinic mm-hmm. or at least a provider that has some understanding of what happens in that facility. Yeah, for sure. And and have asked the asked the, you know a lot of a lot of the plants that I work with are in rural communities where there's a clinic, not mm-hmm. a hospital, but a clinic. Right. So ask your and a lot of times there's a PA in there. Mm-hmm. So ask them to come down and and you know on a, you know buy them dinner. You know ask them to come down and just say we just want to show you what we do here exactly. Um, just so you know when our employees come in, these are going to be the the reasons why some of these things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really the the main reason is that it expedites the reporting. I, I think so too, and and just clarifies the communication. Mm-hmm. It's always so garbled if you are working with. Uh, you know, someone who's unfamiliar with occupational yep. health service or unfamiliar with the facility. Right. You don't always, the communication isn't always good and that right. there can be consequences to that, of mm-hmm. course. Yeah. This is good stuff, man. Yeah. You could talk about this for a long time. <laughs> and and um, yeah. so maybe we'll have a chance to talk about it again. I, yeah. I do think it's really interesting. I love, uh, oddly, I find myself, I, I do enjoy the food processing, meatpacking world. Right. You know, and as you said, it, it really, um, I think the industry as a whole has kind of gotten a bad rap. Right. You know, people that don't know the industry well mm-hmm. have a have a poor impression of the industry. But, right. uh, you know, I work with some facilities here in this area, some brand new facilities, some existing facilities that are constantly upgrading. I mean, they are interested in efficiency, safety, you know, process improvement. They are constantly working on that stuff, investing lots and lots of money. Right. You know, they are not perhaps what they were a hundred years ago. No, not. They're really remarkable facilities. Yeah, they used to butcher all those animals on a wood butcher block. Yeah. <laughs> you know. It, it, those days are long gone, other than maybe that little mom and pop locker where they're yeah. just the family working there. Yeah. And they're, processing your deer or whatever yeah and i know? still ride a ton of those i still work with a ton of those guys yeah. and and i and i'll always i'll always have an affinity to those guys because that's yeah. kind of where i that's kind of where i got my start but um i get it you know i spend the the majority of my time working you know with with the the the, the larger customers that i have because the um what's going to make or break them is their culture mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. if i can be a small part of that and culture really requires consistency. Right. So I, I think it does require, it necessitates a little bit more frequent presence on our part sure. oftentimes. Sure. Yeah. Well, if people want to get a hold of you, yeah. how, do they, how do they reach you or how do they find your website? What, yeah, so our, our website is insuranceassociates.biz, B-I-Z. Okay. Um, there's a lot of those insurance associates <laughs> companies out there, so we couldn't get a .com address years ago when we built it. Um, uh, but my email is cole at insuranceassociates. Is it C-O-L-E? Yep, C-O-L-E. And then you can find me on uh, LinkedIn, just Cole Williams. And then you can find me on Twitter at, at, at CW underscore risk advisor. Very cool. Um, just, you know, I, I'm i just a big believer that this information, since it's in the public domain, everybody should have access to mm-hmm. it. I don't necessarily have to work with somebody to provide them, point them in the right direction. Yeah. You know, preferably we would prefer to work with, you know, work with people sure. because that's how, you know, that's how we get paid to do, you know, to, to, to do what we do. Well, but, that, that's my world too, man. Right. I get calls every day from people with safety related or OSHA questions. Right. <laughs> I may know them, may not know them, maybe may be a client, maybe not. But if I have the information readily available, I'm happy to give it to right. them. Right. If I've got to go do a few hours of research for you, there might be an invoice. Well, in and the there's mail. a lot of stuff on our <laughs> website that it's just like, that's, you know, like that, that indirect cost thing. That's, 
there's a small video on our website and, you know, on, on our blog post that well, you can find a lot of free information mm-hmm. on it, but Good. the, the, you know, the, the devil's in the details and, and, you know, if you want to work with us and have us help, help you implement this stuff, we'd be glad to. I like I that, man. Thank you very much for coming yeah, down. Thanks it's for been having a pleasure, me. man. Yeah. I've enjoyed this it. This hour kind of flew by, didn't it? <laughs> they fly by. I, I, and I learned something from every one of these episodes. I, I think I'm the lucky one typically because I get to sit down with people that specialize, that have passion about what we do. And so I know my mom listens occasionally too. So between my mother and I and now, <laughs> Cam, you're getting the, you know, you're going to be a safety uh, deputy here in about <laughs> two or three episodes, man. I don't know if they told you that or not, but you'll be out there looking for hazards too. So. Yeah, for sure. Hey guys, I hope you have a great weekend. I think, I think we're all going to be uh, on the grill this weekend. Am I, what's that? Does that sound reasonable? Ribeyes are up. That sounds fantastic. Have a great weekend, everybody. I appreciate your listening. Thanks again to the sponsors. Thank you, fellas. And we'll talk to you again next week. Bye-bye. A Huda Media Production.